Welcome to episode eight of Leading Insights. So today we're joined by Milith Finova and I'll let her tell you a little bit about her current job. Okay, hi, thanks for having me. So my current, uh, I don't know if it's a job, my current, let's call it a portfolio of projects, so things that I'm all across, um, really involves uh, working with people in all sectors, um, trying to help them think about how they can improve the systems that they're working within from a human-centred perspective, um, bringing the kind of bringing the heart back to to business and to government and at, at all levels. That's kind of what I'm doing. And I'm doing that through my, um, my firm, Huddle, which is a human-centred design agency, which we started in 2009, and um, also through my coaching and thishuman.com, which is the platform that surrounds my book. Okay. And tell us a little bit about the journey you've been on to, to get to that kind of portfolio. So I started um, as a sort of a biomedical engineer. So I studied biomedical engineering and I was really interested in, in neuroscience and the brain and how the brain works. So I majored in neurosciences and then I had an opportunity to go away and work in a research hospital in Japan for a year, sort of in between sort of my undergrad and my PhD. And uh, that was a research hospital for brain and blood vessels. So they just basically specialised in stroke. And uh, they were also a um, like an experimental hospital where they got all of the latest technology and, and because they were a research hospital as well. So I got to play with some pretty amazing equipment for that time. So this was sort of mid-90s. So I was doing sort of functional MRI testing and I was doing, you know, PET um, imaging and all of this stuff, just literally just looking at the brain. And and then I was just a bit, I had this weird dream that was an eyeball trying to see itself. Like it was this weird, weird, weird dream and uh, just in space, like blackness. And then um, I woke up going, we're we're using the thing in our heads to try and work out how the thing in our heads work. And I just felt this was like a bit futile, like we're never ever going to get out of this loop of doing brain research. And that whole thing um, set me on a bit of a, a discovery which was what I was actually interested in and what I was actually interested in was um, how do I improve the conditions for people like how do I what is it that I need to know how to do to be able to design better services to be able to design better policy to be able to just improve the, the conditions within which people exist and that's when I decided to do my PhD in human-centred design. So that's how, that was the, it was that weird dream that set me off on this um, other trajectory around design and designing with and for people. Um, and I've basically been doing that ever since. So I did my PhD in the Defence Department and I was working with military aircraft pilots around the workload and situational awareness and designing for improved performance. 
And then I did very similar work in the automotive industry at Ford and Sumitomo. And then I spent some time at Telstra in the emerging technology space, um, always working from the how do we design for the human experience. Um, and then set up Huddle as, a, um, as an agency to be able to help other organisations do that for themselves, essentially. So that looked like service design and strategic design and, um, and we've sort of, you know, moved on from there. We started a school called Huddle Academy. We started teaching it. I wrote a book. So it's just kind of, it's sort of evolved from, from mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And, and how did it feel at that point when you had that dream sort of changing, changing your direction a little bit? Mm. Well, it was, um, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of funny stories actually, Kate, that led to me finding myself at the Defence Department doing a PhD in human-centred design. Um, and I think that I think one of the one of the approaches that I have to life perhaps is that I um, I'm not afraid to explore new pathways. So no matter how quirky and weird they are in terms of their source, you know, whether it's a dream or an odd conversation or but one of the reasons why I ended up in the Defence Department was one of the professors at the university that I was at was talking to me about doing a PhD and I wasn't actually on board with the idea. I I had this sort of, I need to get out there and start doing stuff and I don't want to spend more time at university knowing this much about something that's going to be that, you know, a tiny bit relevant. And he was just saying, look, if you could be anyone, who do you want to be? And I said that I wanted to be... Charlie off Top Gun. I wanted to in the, in that scene where she's walking down the the tarmac, and they introduce her and they say, you know, she has a PhD in astrophysics. She works for the Pentagon. You know, the Pentagon trusts her, so you should. And and I was young. I was probably still in primary school, and I just remember going, I want to be her. I want to be her. I want to be that woman. And so I shared with him that story, and uh, he picked up the phone and called the head of the Air Operations Division at the Defence Science and Technology Organisation at the time and um, just started a conversation around a potential PhD candidate with a scholarship, would they take her on? And then that's what I did for the next four years. I was a civilian contractor at the Defence Department working with F-18, F-111 pilots, looking at situational awareness. And so it was, it was, I was just kind of you know following my nose in a way and it felt um gosh it felt really exciting it was like I was you know just living out these weird scenarios that I just shared with people that I wanted to do which was great yeah it just shows you that it's worth being honest about you know your childhood dreams and and sort of being really transparent about what you think no matter if it's not what you think somebody needs to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And and also um, I think I was in a, a a pretty unique situation in that I, you know, the PhD wasn't something that I'd, I was attached to. So it could have happened or it couldn't have happened. Like there was nothing at risk for me in that conversation. And I think often people um, resist having those really, honest and open conversations because they feel like something is at risk for them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's one of the lessons that I've actually learned throughout my career, which is to um, that I have learned that you never really lose out when you show up 100% authentically and say the thing, say the thing that everyone perhaps wants to say but isn't saying. Mm. Um, you know, in the short term it might feel like you take a heat, but hit, but in the long term, always, always, always it's the best policy. That's what I have personally learned. So I was acting that way, you know, when I was younger without that much to lose really, um, but I'm grateful that that has kind of, carried on in my career yeah and and was it like Top Gun was it as male dominant as Top Gun or when you were there oh yeah and in fact I often reflect on this um I've always worked in male dominated in um industries um so until I started Huddle and when I started Huddle um it was mostly women all the time um and we had like the whole reverse sort of scenario which I loved um, but it was also quite confusing for me because I had learned how to work in groups of men um, and I hadn't worked in groups of women before in my professional career so that was actually quite a um, quite an adjustment um, in terms of how you know work gets organized and problems get solved and yeah, that's that was a whole that was a, a really massive part of my transition into leadership, actually. So you've got a fascinating combination of experience. How how does that all come together for you now, or influence the kind of leader that you are? You know, in my book, I talk about um, one of my beliefs, which is that I believe that everything that you're doing is an apprenticeship for the next thing, um, and. I think that's true. I think it's also sort of a caveat to that is that you you take an approach to your to life like it's a masterclass. Like I think Oprah actually has a has a podcast that's something like that. Life as a masterclass, something like that. But um, and what I mean by that is that you, you sort of um, you, you look at all of the things that happen to you as as an opportunity for learning, as an opportunity for growth. And I think what that then does is it helps you better connect and combine those learnings in new ways that suit where you're at in your development as a as a person or as a leader or a designer. And you know, a lot of the a lot of the things that I learned in the automotive sector, for example, I was working on new vehicle programs. I learned all about the design process in like on the cold face, you know, where you're actually building something that's going to come off the line and people are going to sit in and drive around as opposed to the more abstract design, which we might do in, in strategy and, and design thinking and that sort of thing. So that's, that has always, I've always and still do refer back to some of the lessons that I learned in trying to communicate with people who have a completely different perspective of what needs to happen, who themselves are under time pressure to get certain things signed off. And you need to find a way to work together because the thing that you're building is united. It's the one thing. So um, I've just always uh, been leveraging different aspects. So the neuroscience, for example, is all throughout my book. I explain how people conceive of ideas and think through problems and stuff leveraging a little bit of my history in neuroscience to be able to talk a little bit about well 
how are we wired as humans and where do these thought processes actually reside within the brain and why is it difficult to put words around emotions, you know? And and I just, it's all, it all feels like maybe when I'm 100, I'm going to look back and go, wow, that was a really well curated <laughs> journey considering <laughs> where you've ended up. But, um, but it, it has really been, it, there is no... Um, deliberate or specific design that sits behind my career it really has been an organic evolution and revolution sometimes <laughs> yeah I think that's a, a common theme with the people that we've spoken throughout this series of you know that it's been much more of a kind of happenstance um meander rather than a real career trajectory that people have gone on and yeah. and they've really valued yeah. that and and learned so much from it I think one of yeah and I think I think perhaps one of the reasons why that might be a common thing is that and I know I can only speak from my own experience but when I've become attached to something happening I find that I find that it's more difficult to to make it so you know like when and when I mean attachment I mean it needs to look a certain way and be a certain thing and by a certain time and with a certain person and you know all of those things that we can kind of get a little bit fixated on and and what I've learned is is a little bit of you know my perspective is so limited in terms of what's actually possible so I, all I can really do is continue to be open-minded to be exploratory, to be always, always learning, to never, ever, ever assume that I'm done, you know. That's it. I'm at the pinnacle of whatever. That's just not, I think that's where things start closing down and shutting down. And, and, yeah, and, sort of and, and particularly so, at the moment with, you know, this unprecedented time of, of the COVID pandemic and I think a lot of people who felt they'd really made it you know with their business or their career yeah. and and things have really been turned upside down and there's so much uncertainty have you got any yeah. advice for those people oh uh, look first of all the first thing that I have is just a huge sense of compassion and shared effort to work through this chaos right like I just feel like everyone is in everyone is in exactly the same position within the context that they're in right some people's businesses are actually booming but with that comes a whole other different set of challenges right they may not be ready for that growth and then there are some people who are on the other end of the spectrum who lost their businesses and lost their jobs and 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 have a whole other set of challenges that they're facing into but everybody is affected and everybody is working through how to muddle their way through uncertainty and the one thing that I think this is going to teach us and this would be you know I don't really like giving advice but this would be the the, the thoughts that I would share with people is that I think one of the the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves is to is to be more comfortable with not knowing the answers and to be more comfortable with not putting so much pressure on ourselves to be able to work out what to do because sometimes situations are so complex and so 
ambiguous that you actually can't think through it all. The only thing you can do is take the next best action. And the next best action might be to brush your teeth and to, you know, put food on the table and to uh, give yourself 15 minutes break or an hour or have a bath or whatever it is. Sometimes that's the next best action. And I feel like we put so much pressure on ourselves to, you know, re configure and conceive of our businesses straight away and have the next five-year strategy sorted out in the context of the impacts of COVID. And, and to those that can do that, brilliant. Um, and to those that can't, I think it's okay because there's so much unknown. And um, action brings clarity. So the next step that you take, you're going to learn something else and that's going to give you clarity for the next step to take and then that's going to give you clarity for the next step to take. And that is the essential premise of design, really. It's it's an emergent practice. The more you research, the more you find out and the more clarity you have around the actual, you know, inside of the problem that you're there to solve. So that would be be my, the thoughts that I would share today. In your book, uh, which I absolutely loved, I loved it particularly, I think, because I'm a, a sort of scientist at, at heart. So I loved the kind of amalgamation of design and the neuroscience and the engineering. And, and it really sort of spoke to me, really uh, new and That's exciting for me. So you, you talk about in your book about your beginner, returning to your beginner's mind. Can you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit for our listeners and, and why it's so important? Sure. So it, it sort of um, relates back to what I was saying a little bit earlier in our conversation about having this mindset that you're actually never, ever done learning. And even though there's there's a lot of, you know, especially with people like yourself in, in the line of work that you do, for example, when you are in that position to do your job, obviously people would love for you to be an expert and you're not in your beginner's mind going, hmm, I might try something new today. You know, it's probably not, not appropriate. So your expertise is always with you. But what a beginner's mind is about is to always be ready to see the world anew, to always be ready to have a look at the thing that you know really, really well from a... Um, from a slightly different perspective to see what that then creates the opportunity for in terms of what you might be able to explore. Thank you. I just got a coffee delivery. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and I think, I think a beginner's mind is also like I refer to um, that little parable, that little story between the professor and the Zen master about the cup. And, you know, the professor's gone to the Zen master to say, teach me everything that you know about Zen. And the Zen master says, starts pouring a cup of tea and then keeps pouring it and keeps pouring it. And then the professor's like, but all the tea's coming out of the cup. And and um, he said, you know, I can only teach you when your cup is empty. If your cup is full and you think you already know everything, then it's really difficult to, to learn new things. And... The reason why I talk about a beginner's mind, especially in the context of human-centred design and designing with people and for people, is that whenever we show up, we show up with our worldviews and our belief systems and our um, life experiences. 
and they colour the way that we make meaning of other people's experiences. And if you're there to connect with their reality and understand their worldview and to be able to inform a solution or a design that is going to be native to their reality, it's essential that you're able to take that beginner's mind, which is this, I'm going to assume that I don't know anything about this person's experience. I'm going to assume that I know nothing about the context within which we're here to explore. And it just sets up that space for new insight and to get close as we possibly can to another person's experienced reality. One of the mistakes I think that we often make unconsciously is that we think people experience the world the same way we do. And it's not true from a five senses reality perspective. It's certainly not true from a psychological meaning-making perspective. It's definitely not true from a worldview belief system perspective. So it's really, really crucial to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the world of kind of health and social care, it can be a bit slow and bureaucratic and, and there's a lot of experts and kind of doctors, doctor knows best kind of ethos around. And, and it can be hard to get people to get on board with new methods such as design tools and people can be sceptical. And, and, and people, there's a lot of fear as well about actually asking our, our clients or our patients what they think and getting them to fully inform how the services are designed how would you help someone like me who's sort of relatively early in in their career to uh, have you got any thoughts on how you can really engage with these people who who maybe are a bit more skeptical and and push push forward with your enthusiasm for, yeah. for new methods there's so much there's so much I want to share but I'll just t- talk about two things so the first one is when we find a way of working and a methodology that really resonates with us, like human-centred design did and does continue to do so with me, we want the whole world to know what we found. And so what we tend to do is we learn all the language and we, we, we fill ourselves up with all of the knowledge and the, and the tools and the methods and, and all of that and we become really eager to, to bring that into the world and to implement everything that way. What we forget, and this is why this is why I wrote the book, This Human, is that we, we forget that the people that we're working, that we're collaborating with, that we need to sort of get on board to be able to help the person that we're ultimately there to help, which might be, you know, patients or clients or whatever you call them. We forget that they too are people and we also need to design for them. So what I tend to do is say instead of going in with the intention to use human-centred design, the very first thing that I would do is understand the needs and fears and wants of the person that you need to be communicating with and communicate to those things. And whether you use design thinking or human-centred design or we're going to do a patient journey or we need to extract the insights or whatever, whether you use that language or not is, is almost irrelevant because what you're trying to do 
is you're trying to use that methodology to achieve an outcome, which is an improved patient experience, for example. The language that you use needs to be native to the organisation that you're trying to affect change in and needs to be empathic to the people who are also on this journey. Some people are going to be right on board with you. They're going to be running faster than you and you're going to need to actually go, whoa, 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 hang on. You're running with the samurai sword. We can actually do a lot of damage if we don't do this properly. You're going to have those conversations. And then at the same time, there's going to be other people where you're not, they're not actually ready to explore human-centered design as an alternative. But what we're, what you'll be doing is having a different conversation, which is what, what, what can this outcome help you with? What, what challenge are you facing? What, and to be helping them address their needs and using language that they're familiar with. So that would be the first thing that I would say is that it's, it's okay to not um, be able to, to do the whole spiel and kit and caboodle with everybody and that as a human-centred designer you also need to design your approach to the people that you're talking with. So always starting with an exploratory conversation before you start exploring how you might do something differently. Like what are the challenges that you're facing at the moment? What's keeping you awake at night? What If you could solve one thing, what would that be? Um, and, you know, doing some design research, doing some ethnographic research first before having the let's do human-centred design conversation. So that would be the first thing. Human-centred design, this is so controversial that I'm saying this, but human-centred design or design thinking as an approach isn't appropriate for every situation. And sometimes what I find is that people become quite enamoured with the power that resides within that methodology to be able to improve conditions for people um, and want to apply it to every single situation. And that can do more damage than good sometimes because then what you're what you're seen as is a is a evangelist for a methodology, and um, as opposed to a person who has access to all of this knowledge, human centered design being one of those things, to be able to collaborate together to achieve this shared outcome, and that would be the other piece of advice that I that I would give is to not is to not be um, too evangelistic about um, using human-centred design as a methodology to be able to solve problems um, because people are resistant to that sort of um, energy, I think. And then there's also um, one of the, the biggest superpowers that a, a human-centred design sort of oriented practitioner who's trying to create systemic change, I think one of the biggest superpowers is patience because a lot of patience and empathy and I don't mean empathy for the patients I mean empathy for the people who are the the ones that are the most resistant because for them there's something at risk for them and that's why they're resisting the change and it could be reputation it could be a sense of identity it could be a sense of authority or power or control or influence there's something at risk and if we lose our ability to have compassion for those people. And every time I say this, I remember, I, I can see in the room people just kind of rolling their eyes because they're up against someone who's making their life really difficult, right? And it's like I, I don't have compassion for that person. They're just standing in my way and I can't get the thing that I need to get done. 
But if we lose our ability to have compassion for that person who's on their own journey through some form of change because you're showing up as the agitator in that moment, then the ability for us to be able to continue the long process of change that comes with systemic change will diminish. So it's it's this it's the, that's why I think the self practice and reflective practice and all of that is really important for people in these positions because not every day is a great day and sometimes you're the person you're the only person in the room who can see an alternate future and the status quo is um, it's like molasses it can be very um, hard to to move. And that should be a motivating thing. You know, it shouldn't be something that that um, slows you down or whatever, but the thing that will get you through is patience and compassion for those people who are being a pain in your rear. If you can find a way to still have compassion for them, yeah, you'll be able to do what you're there to do. Yeah. yeah, that's what's been fascinating about COVID from the healthcare perspective anyway, is how agile it's been and how quickly people have responded. And the people who have been like, oh, no, let's think about it. Let's involve all these other people before we can make any decisions have just been, yes, do it. You know, and it's been exciting that that part of it. But but the the you know obviously bureaucracy has its place and you can see it going backwards. But I, you do hope that we can learn something from that period of agility and change. Yeah, and that yeah. Forward. And you know there is a there is a saying that says you know necessity is the mother of all innovation. So when and and I know in you know my personal experience you know throughout my career so far that whenever there's been a crisis no matter which organization I've been in people just go and just get in line and get shit done and nothing can stop that the challenge that we have is that we don't want to innovate only when our backs against the wall and we have no other option and that's the challenge. So when in times of, of comfort and safety, you know, humans are wired to maintain that for the sake of the species. Physiologically, we like to maintain safety, a sense of safety. It's very few of us that are kind of deliberately going out into the unknown and going, I'm interested, I'm just going to have a poke around over here and see what happens. There's not, there's not a massive part of the population that's comfortable with that type of work. So I think it's just knowing that, you know, knowing that the tendency is going to be for people to want to do things the way that they feel they can and are safe in doing. So what you represent is a little bit of chaos to their world. And if you know that that's what you're doing, it's very easy to have empathy and compassion for them and find the language that's going to create more safety for them to make those changes. Whereas in crisis, no one is feeling safe. Everyone is trying to do anything that they can to bring as much certainty and safety back into the system. So they're willing to try anything to do that. So I really see it as a tussle between sort of chaos and order all the time, you know. The system always wants to come back to order 
doesn't like being in chaos. It's it's fascinating. Well, I had like so many more. I feel like we could have a whole series because I had so many more questions for you, but I'm (laughs) going to run out of time. So we've been, our final question for everyone has been, um, in another life, is there any career that you would have liked to have embarked on or had a shot of? A lighthearted finish. Yeah, so, you know, it's really interesting. I um, I think I would have loved to live as a as an artist, as a fine, like go to, you know, school of fine arts and I have this, I have this dream which is so romantic and not at all based in any reality. I'm completely acutely aware that um, I would have this life, a bohemian life of just, doing what I wanted when I wanted to and not having a care in the world and just being able to creatively express myself through my art all the time and not feel this, which is what I feel in this life, this constant, what can I be doing more? What can I be doing more? How can I do, you know, affect more people? How can I, you know, this whole sort of, am I doing enough feeling mm-hmm. um, in this other world to just be a little bit more sort of hedonistic maybe and just do whatever I wanted at the whim of my soul. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's sound good. <laughs> Maybe after lockdown is lifted, a little week's <laughs> retreat is on the cards. Yeah, maybe. Doing that. I'd love that. Yeah. Great. Oh, well, thanks so much. That's so fascinating. No problem. My pleasure.